Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in this space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of CRE Exchange. I'm Cole Perry, your host and senior market analyst here at Altus Group, a leading provider of asset and fund level intelligence. I'm joined by Omar Elterai, our U.S. Director of Research. Together, we'll share the latest news and trends in the U.S. commercial real estate market. Omar, it's great to be with you. Glad to be here. It's been a few weeks. What caught your attention in the world of releases? Yeah, so a lot has happened, but I would break them into chunks here. The first big segment was inflation data. We had a number of major indicators come out since we last spoke. On the inflation front, we saw a number of releases. U.S. Consumer Price Index rose 0.4% in September from August. This was a bit above expectations. And if you remove food and energy and ultimately get to the core CPI, this was up 0.3% on the month. On a year-on-year basis, CPI was up 3.7%. This is unchanged from the month before, but core was up 4.1%, which was slightly lower than the 4.3% recorded in August. And while the headline and core numbers are closely tracked by the market and central bankers, another measure, which is referred to as super core, which ultimately strips out housing, this was up 0.6% month on month. This is the third monthly rise in a row. Also released since we last spoke was the producer price index, which rose 0.5% in September over August. Taking this all together, we can see that the overall trend of cooling inflation appears to remain, though the current pace and progress towards a lower level of inflation seems to be slowing. Also released was the employment data. The September employment report showed strength really across the labor market. Non-farm payrolls grew at a robust 336,000 job pace in the month, or looking at this on a month-over-month basis, 0.2%, or also on a year-on-year basis, this represents a 2.1% change. Additionally, uh, upward revisions to job growth from both the July and the August numbers really emphasize the strength in the employment market. Job growth was reported really across both the public and private sectors and across nearly all industries. And the growth in the job data really did help support continued cooling of wage pressures. And this was seen as average hourly earnings grew 0.2% in September. This is the same pace as the prior month. But when you look at this in terms of a year-on-year basis and year-on-year growth, this is representative of a 4.2%. This is the slowest pace in average hourly earnings growth in really more than two years and really puts average hourly earnings growth right around those pre-pandemic levels. So taking inflation and the jobs data together, what we see is that inflation remains persistent and the labor market remains quite robust and tight. And this contributed to pushing treasury yields up higher during the week. 
as many market participants were concerned that the slowdown in the progress seen in both of these areas could give reason for the Fed to have additional hikes before the end of the year. So they still have two meetings. And while there's less certainty around when they'll hike, the strength in the employment market as well as persistent inflation do give many market participants reason to believe that another rate hike is on the table. And this concern was not mitigated with the release of the Fed minutes from their September meeting. The minutes were released on October 11th. And while it wasn't necessarily new information, they really did confirm that there is still concern around inflation and the labor market is still quite tight. However, the minutes did call out commercial real estate. And so while I encourage you to read the minutes, if you have time, the quick takeaways in terms of commercial real estate are that it is an area of concern for many of the members of the FOMC. So the callouts really had to do with the credit side. So you've seen a slowdown in banks, non-farm, non-residential loans, they actually contracted recently. And this is the first time that they contracted on a quarterly basis since March of 2022. The minutes also noted signs of credit quality deterioration, while credit quality as a whole across sectors was noted as remaining solid. There were a number of callouts and commercial real estate was one of those where there was concern around deterioration. You're seeing higher delinquency rates on non-farm, non-residential CRE loans on bank balance sheets, which rose in the second quarter. But then also the minutes gave a call out to rising delinquency rates across the CMBS loans. And they specifically called out office and retail. That shouldn't come as a surprise, but I think it strengthens the point that commercial real estate is a major contributor to the economy, is absolutely being taken into consideration at pretty much all levels, including the high levels of the central bank. And so, Cole, what other indicators were you watching? Yeah, there were a couple of big ones in the last few weeks that are certainly related to what we were just talking about. But uh, the NFIB Small Business Optimism Index came out and it came out at 90.8, which was the lowest in four months and below a forecasted 91.4. So this is the 15th consecutive month that that measure has been below the 50-year average. Small businesses are still really concerned about inflation and they remain extremely cynical about the economy. So this clocked in at a net negative 46% of respondents who expect the economy to improve in the next six months. And I think, again, largely a result of inflation. There was virtually no change from a year prior in that measure. And there were decreases on all the other questions, right? So that's, are you planning to make capital outlays? Are you planning to hire more? Presumably this means they're not looking to increase their real estate footprint anytime soon, or at least until their outlook on the next six months improves. Yeah, we also got construction spending for August and construction employment for September. Though private spending on construction was up 5.3% year on year, but public spending on construction was up 12.4% for a total year-on-year -year change of 6.9%. So you're really starting to see the impact of the infrastructure spending associated with the Inflation Reduction Act signed last September. And so in that public number, now construction employment was up 2.7% year-on-year in September. And again, so while we have recovered to 
pre-pandemic levels of employment in 2022, we're now maintaining a pre-pandemic rate of growth in employment. And so why is this important? Mainly, construction employment has traditionally been a leading indicator of a recession. And so it's among the first sectors to really contract, right? It seems silly to state it outright, but construction has to start before it completes. And so if you're looking at this as a leading indicator of the way things are going, we're still seeing robust growth in employment. And so a lot of this construction is still starting and presumably will come online as well. Now, I was also taking a look this week at bank earnings. So they kicked off on Friday. So by the time we recorded, we got JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup. These were all beats. So JP Morgan's earnings were up 35% a year on year. Revenue was up 22% year on year. And net interest income was up 44% year on year. So for our listeners, that's the difference between interest charged and what is paid out on deposits. Rising rates have really been a boon to some of the largest banks over the last quarter. Profits were up 61% for Wells Fargo, 2% for Citigroup. Big disparity there. Again, Citigroup has struggled in their investment banking business. That's something we talked about last time we talked about bank earnings. But what was important from all these calls was their commentary. So the consumer has remained extremely resilient despite inflation. And the big banks have benefited from higher interest rates. Core inflation does remain very high, but banks expect interest rates to stay, and it's cliche to say at this point, but higher for longer. So Jamie Dimon himself expressed some concerns about a few things, namely geopolitics, the quote that's been passed around the last couple of days, that it's the most dangerous time in decades, referring to the conflicts in Ukraine and Israel. So adding to all the uncertainty about the macro economy, executives at other banks warn that they're starting to see loans go bad as consumers deplete their pandemic coffers. But again, they have the reserves to cover these for the time being. They've really bolstered these over the last few quarters. I looked specifically into mortgage originations for the big banks. So they were down 9% for JP Morgan, 17% for Citi, and 70% for Wells Fargo. This is not a surprise. Wells Fargo is easily the largest holder of commercial mortgages or mortgages writ large in the United States. But they have the charge-offs to cover these. They've stated that they were going to scale down their mortgage originations, but they expect to charge off more in the coming quarters. We also saw PNC Bank, which is Pittsburgh-based bank. They announced their earnings last week as well. They have more than half a trillion in assets, so very large bank. But their profits slipped. Their forecasts for net interest income are dropping, and they have announced a plan to lay off at least 4% of their workforce. Very different story between them and at least the three of the big four that we have results for. They're still struggling to maintain deposits, even though they are a large bank. But I think this is still a carryover from what we saw in March, struggles from regional banks. Those weren't the only earnings calls we got last week. We've received some in the airline sector. So two of the big four airlines reported last week. We had United and Delta. These were both beats as well. They both saw surges in bookings in international flights. For Delta specifically, these were strong in Latin America and for transatlantic flights. These made up for slight slowdowns in domestic bookings, but they stated actually that this was a lot of people replacing domestic travel with international travel. And so they're not super concerned with that slowdown in the quarter. 
But I wasn't just paying attention to these for travel purposes. What most people don't know or what people should know is that modern airlines are really functionally financial services companies that fly planes on the side. And so there was a study that came out or actually Delta reported this themselves that 1% of United States GDP flows through Delta Airlines branded American Express cards. That's a crazy statistic to me. So we should pay attention to airlines, really not for what's going on in their individual flights. Those are almost downstream impacts of what's going on with the consumer. We should look at their actual earnings because they're functionally a financial services companies instead that sell points and allow you to fly using those. And so I think probably should wait to see what happens with American and with Southwest to see what's really going on in that sector. But you will start to see real impacts to the consumer through airline earnings, even outside of their individual travel numbers. Omar, were you seeing anything in the world of earnings this week? Yeah. And just to chime in on that, because that is a crazy stat, the way that consumers spend, I do think that especially looking at the companies that are involved in either selling goods or services that ultimately capture much of the consumption behavior is really hard data. It's good quality data. So thank you for tuning in and sharing those insights. But also one of the earnings calls that I listened to was BlackRock, so largest asset manager. And overall, it was a beat for the quarter. They reported uh, $10.91 per share EPS. This was significantly higher than expected, ultimately beat on revenue, as well as they had greater SG&A or expense control. And that really drove the overall surprise. However, your point around the best nuggets are really in the commentary, the management discussion with the analysts. And one of the themes that stood out on the call was the opportunities that come with a higher rate environment. Management discussed resurging interest in fixed income and credit, which would hopefully be translated into greater returns for investors. But then also they noted that the higher rate environment does open up many strategic acquisitions and considerations for the company. BlackRock has historically gotten as large as it has through many large acquisitions, often surrounding crises, but even during periods of calm as well. I don't think it was ever off of their radar, but it was one of the considerations that accompany this high rate environment. But then also, since we last spoke, a few things have popped up in terms of commercial real estate on the regulatory front that I thought would be worth noting. So in the U.S., while we're still awaiting bank capital regulations, aka Basel Endgame, those comments, the industry comments are due in November. But possibly coming and being more tangible as we go into the fourth quarter is SEC's conflicts of interest in securitization proposal. This was scheduled to have a final rule in April of next year, but CREFC or the Commercial Real Estate Finance Council recently put out a note saying that they anticipate that a final rule may come well before that and could possibly come as soon as Thanksgiving. So that's something that we're absolutely keeping on our radar because it has massive implications for the CMBS market and market participants. But then also in terms of regulatory updates and stories that popped up on the radar, there was a Bloomberg article recently released that reported that 
the ECB is increasing scrutiny of commercial real estate loans across many of the banks within that region. The article specifically noted that the central bank is asking property valuers to provide greater transparency on how they're compiling estimates for valuations, given that the article noted some concern from the central bank around how fast banks are writing down or adjusting the values of the collateral that back these loans. I know that since we last spoke, we've had a pretty busy event calendar. Cole, what were some of the events that either you attended or that were notable? Yeah. Last week, I had the privilege of attending in person the most insightful hour in CRE. So that's a conversation hosted by Walker and Dunlop between CEO Willie Walker and Peter Lenneman, who's one of the preeminent, if not the preeminent real estate economist. And so they hosted their webinar actually in person for some attendees at the New York Stock Exchange in the boardroom. So I had the privilege of attending in person last week. Extremely insightful conversation, wide ranging, lasted about an hour. Linneman discussed a few things and namely the Federal Reserve and interest rates. And so he's very outspoken when it comes to this particular topic. Linneman stated only 20% of the U.S. economy is really sensitive to short-term interest rates. So the other 80% includes things like government spending and healthcare, which are not sensitive to short-term interest rate hikes. So he left this question out there of what is the Fed really doing? Do they actually have the power to curb inflation? Had some other commentary about previous economic cycles, right? When capital markets are down, property markets have typically been down as well. But this cycle is a little different to him. Some sectors are actually doing quite well or doing okay, but not office. And so he talked a little bit about this and coupled with the chronic housing shortage or shortfall, he's been really involved in some office to residential conversions lately, but made it clear that this is not the silver bullet. This is not the answer to our housing crisis because conversions are really only feasible where buildings are empty. There was a funny quote in here where he said the biggest enemy to office to residential conversions are occupancy between 20 and 80%, which covers practically all office buildings at this point. And so this is something that is not really discussed when talking about these, but it was funny to hear him discuss this relevant to some of the consulting work that he's been doing. Lindemann also touched a little bit on conflict growing in the Middle East, so between Israel and Hamas, right? And outside of the sheer horror of the situation, if this grows into a region-wide conflict, Lindemann was concerned that this is probably going to have some impact on the oil supply. And of course, everything flows downstream of fuel prices and we could see a return of inflation. I see where that sentiment comes from. And I think in light of events in the past week or so, this is the concern that showed up even in some of the earnings calls we discussed before. So overall, really insightful event. A lot of topics covered in less than an hour, but I was really blessed to attend the event in person. I think it is in a different city each quarter, so I was glad it was in New York this time. But I'll look forward to tuning into that one next quarter, even if it's not in person. Omar, I know you had a busy week as well. You had the State of the Market webinar. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, well, you got to hear from Dr. Lenneman. I got to speak with two other industry veterans earlier this week, Victor Kalinog from Manulife Investments, as well as Adriana de Alcantara from Heinz. And it was kind of a wide ranging discussion that really picked their insights and got their perspectives on strategic level thinking. They shared their views on 
commercial real estate in the context of capital allocation. We discussed uncertainties really faced by the industry, as well as shifts that they've seen in market conditions and outlooks and the relevance or opportunity of innovations that I think everybody's discussing, including AI. And even at the end, they shared some career advice for those who are just starting out in CRE. So I want to say thank you to Victor and Adriana. And we had good attendance, but for folks who weren't able to attend the live session, the replay of the call is available. You can either find it on the site or we'll have a link in the show notes here. So outside of macro news, events, I know that we're releasing some original research. Cole, do you want to speak to some of the reports that you're putting out? Yeah, absolutely. First, I'll I'll echo what you said before. That was an excellent conversation you had yesterday in the State of the Market webinar. I would totally recommend that people take a look at that once the recording is out. But yeah, research team has been super busy the last month. I've been putting out some original research. I took a look this past couple of weeks at regional malls. Been a number of stories that came out about regional mall resilience and all in the vein that folks are surprised at the resilience of these types of assets that a lot of folks thought were obsolete. One of the things that's notable is that malls have really faced two distinct sources of competition over the last 25 years. Everyone knows about the internet, but the second source of competition has been discount department stores. So think about Walmart, Sam's Club, Target, Costco. So discount department stores along with warehouse goods. So these types of entities have really seemed to improve upon the primary advantage of the old school traditional department store. And that's the amassing of a wide range of necessities or dry goods in one place. But despite this, institutionally owned regional malls have actually done quite well in public and in private portfolios. Market rents are now exceeding in-place rents. They have seen stabilizing occupancy and now increasing foot traffic, even over their 2019 base levels. So why is this? I'll put the caveat to all this to say that both the widely covered public mall read sector is a fraction of what it once was. There was a huge glut of mall space built in the 80s and 90s that has really been trimmed over the last 15 to 20 years, kind of leading up to and then really accelerating after the global financial crisis. So those portfolios of public REITs represented once about a thousand malls in 2005, and it's really only 450 now. So from 10 public mall REITs in 2000 to four presently, and soon to be only three. But the big story here, and I'll encourage people to check this article out once I release it, but public and private institutional owners of malls have really trimmed their portfolios. They have either lopped off their traditional mall anchors and replaced them with more interesting or dynamic uses other than just dry goods sellers. Effectively, they've reinvested in their best assets. This is a story that's really been across retail, but particularly across malls, which represented a huge portion of the overall retail square footage. So I'll look forward to sharing some other insights about that sector in the coming weeks once that article is released. But the retail sector is one I've been looking at closely, especially in advance of the holidays. The other thing was that I looked at some work from home trends. So the U.S. Census put out their one-year estimates of the 2022 American Community Survey a few weeks ago. So one-year estimates cover places in the United States with more than 65,000 in population. 
that's a little more than 800 of the country's 3,000 counties. And among the more than 30,000 individual data points that the ACS covers, I was closely monitoring remote work trends. So this is the ACS. This is explicitly the percentage of people who work from home 100% of the time. I wish they had hybrid work data, but it's not a data point that they've covered traditionally. So even if we did have that, we wouldn't be able to look at it through time. But a few key points here that I'll point out to everybody, and that's that in 2019, very few places exceeded 10%, the 10% threshold for the percentage of the workforce that was fully remote. I think the areas that did cross the threshold wouldn't surprise people. So a couple of tech industry heavy spots like Austin, Denver, and the North Carolina Research Triangle, but also some like leisure spots, I'll call them. So Lake Tahoe, St. George, Utah, Asheville, North Carolina, Bend, Oregon, a lot of spots where people are drawn to if they work remotely. But by 2022, this was not limited to just those places. The kind of net change to most major counties were above 10%, but tech industry heavy spots were above 30%. That's a huge difference from where they were in, in 2019. So the capital region in Washington, D.C., Across that threshold, there were some lagging federal government return to office mandates that saw levels in counties there above 30%, but also those tech industry heavy markets could still be seen. So Seattle, San Francisco, Austin, Denver. So in terms of net change between 2019 and 2022, these were obviously dominated by Silicon Valley and Washington. So in 2019, these were anywhere from 5 to 15% of the total workforce was remote to above 30% in 2022. But also a lot of recipients of net migration saw huge jumps as well. So we're talking about Versailles and Fulton counties in Georgia. So that's Atlanta and some of the northern suburbs, Collin County, Texas, which is a suburb of the Dallas area, and then Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, which is nearly coterminous with Charlotte. And I'm calling this the numerator effect. So these were placed at lower cost metros that folks were actually drawn to as remote employees. So this was not existing employees prior to the pandemic were transitioning to remote work, but this is people actually moving due to their remote work. So I've only begun to look at a lot of the data from the 2022 ACS estimates, but there seems to be a lot of good information in here. I'll say the one other individual piece of information that I thought was interesting here was that there were no New York area counties on the list in terms of net change. I think that's a testament to how quickly Manhattan has returned to the office. So that's legal, financial, and real estate-related tenants that have returned to the office rather quickly as opposed to, say, technology industry tenants and other markets. But I look forward to looking at more of this data and seeing what we can do with it. But it was certainly interesting. And I think there's a lot more to be seen there. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the report and the initial analysis. I think you hit it spot on by saying that it's just the start of what can be explored here. But I think that this is going to be a big piece in answering that question of what is the future of office, right? I do think that it comes down to understanding the market that the office is in, the condition that the building's in, as well as how well it's currently leased and how it's being operated. So everything looking at that high level, the demographic shifts that you're diving into, as well as the market conditions and the individual levers or positioning that each asset has. And thank you. I hope this is well-received. It definitely has piqued my interest. But then hopping over to other pieces that are currently in the works, 
We do have the fourth quarter commercial real estate conditions and sentiment survey out. This is currently open. It's going to remain open until November and highly encourage everybody to take the survey. You can find it on the website. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. It's open to everybody who's in commercial real estate. The intent is really to better understand the conditions that are affecting really your role or your firm's role, as well as what your personal outlook is going forward. Check the show notes or follow up on the site. That is something that we'll be sharing with the participants of the survey once it's completed. But then finally, I want to give one last shout out to Mike and the Young Real Estate Professionals of New York. This is a nonprofit organization that operates and really brings together industry professionals within the New York area. Altus had the privilege of sponsoring an excellent event last week in Hudson Yards. I personally met many new contacts, but then also caught up with various old friends. Thank you, Mike. You've done a great job of really running YREP over the last many years, and you continue to be an ultimate kind of connector and industry mentor. And so if you weren't able to make that event in the New York area, you can see YREP's regular programming and upcoming events on yrepny.org. And I think that's all I got. Omar, I think that is all the time we've got today. Had a big episode, but I look forward to uh, speaking with you on another episode of CRE Exchange in two weeks. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.